us this morning. Um, and as we begin our time together this morning, I want you to know this, uh, that I am an adult. Uh, really, I am. Trust me, church. I know I've still got my boyish good looks, but like many of you, uh, I am over the age of 18. I can vote in national elections. I pay my own electric bill. I schedule my own eye exams. I'm an adult. Uh, I really, truly am. Yet just like those sweet kiddos we just watched, uh, I still daydream of waking up every day and heading to the ice cream store, uh, of staying up all night and sleeping in all day, of uh, being my own boss, uh, sorry Gabe, uh, of doing whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. I I'm grown up, I'm an adult, and yet, at some level, uh, the dreams of those children resonate with something deep inside of me. Uh, do they resonate with you too? And even though we've grown up, even though some years have been added to our age, there's something deep within me, and I imagine there's something deep within you that dreams of life on your own terms, life without restriction, life without limits, a life of freedom where we can do whatever we choose, whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. That's the dream, isn't it? That's, that's the goal. Whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. It, it's the mantra of our age, the slogan of our times. And uh, it's commonly assumed that this is the path to happiness, that doing whatever you desire on your own terms is how you'll live a life of the greatest fulfillment. It'll take you to total happiness and joy. And increasingly, this idea, whatever I want, however I want, on my own terms, it's found expression in a short little phrase that perhaps you've heard before. Uh, the phrase is, you do you. Have you heard this? You do you. It's a declaration of, of freedom. It's a cultural catchphrase. It's been repeated by celebrities and analyzed in the New York Times. You do you. You want to stay up? Great. You do you. You want to leave early? Fine. You do you. Pay later? No problem. You do you. And I'll do me. You do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And, and as long as you don't hurt anybody, and as long as you don't break the law, uh, things will be just fine, and, and you'll experience happiness. You do you. This is the key to fulfillment, uh, or so we're told. In fact, Urban Dictionary, uh, the popular crowdsource site that lets users give definition to cultural phrases, uh, it says this about you do you. It says, doing you is basically all anyone needs to do. Because as long as you do you, you can't complain about anything. I mean, the logic is this, as long as you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, you'll be just fine. You'll have no regrets. You'll have nothing to complain about. You'll enjoy life at its most fulfilling, life to the full, because doing you is what it's all about. Doing you is going to lead to happiness. Living life on your own terms, we're told, it, it's the only way to live. You do you. It's a motto of our times, and we're told it leads to life without disappointment. But, but is that true? I mean, what really happens when you do you? When doing whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, becomes the framework by which you think and live and engage in the world. For the past five weeks, we've been making our way through the book of Genesis, engaging the foundational narrative of the Bible. Uh, we've been taking a closer look at kind of the first few chapters of Scripture, uh, exploring the true story of a good God who made our good world. And we've been asking together as we dive into this story, the shape of the Bible, we've been trying to look at how it interacts and how it speaks into the many other narratives that exist in our culture that shape us in the way that we see the world. 
We started this series by saying it's true that we are being shaped. Uh, the ideas that surround us impact us. And so as we've made our way through Genesis, we've been asking uh, how what we find here in Scripture should impact the way we understand common cultural assumptions. Uh, we looked at right YOLO, you might remember that, you only live once, or be true to yourself. Uh, this is kind of the journey that we've been on together. And last week, Gabe helped us think more about the common assumption that it's fine for everyone to decide what's right or what's wrong in their own eyes. Uh, Gabe helped us see the limits of what we might call moral relativism. We learned together that if everyone is individually able to decide what's right and what's wrong, then justice can't exist, there can be no evil, there can be no defense of, what right, of what's right, because who to say what's right or what's wrong in a world without moral absolutes? That's, that's what we learned last week. And as we investigated scripture together, we saw that it's a good thing that the Christian faith ex insists that we have a good God who gives us a good moral law. That's where we landed. That's what we learned last Sunday. And if last week suggested that we should be thankful for a good God who helps us see what's right and what's wrong, I believe the text we're about to explore together will show us that we should want to embrace and obey the guidelines that that God has given us. If last week said, hey, it's a good thing to have a God who delineates this is good and this is bad, I think this week is going to help us see that, hey, I should want to follow, I should want to listen to what that God has to say, especially in the age of you do you. And so we've got some real work ahead of us this morning. I think a little introspection, a little diving into this text, and I'm ready to get into it. So if you haven't already, uh, would you join me in Genesis 3? It's on page 2 of our community Bibles, Genesis 3. Let's open God's Word together uh, and see what it has to say about what really happens when you do you. Genesis 3, verse 1, the text says this, uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is where our text begins this morning with an intriguing question from a crafty serpent. Now, before we dive into what matters most in this text, I think we need to spend just a little time talking about this talking snake, uh, don't we? Uh, because this account of snakes talking to people, it's an episode that some have cited as evidence that the Bible is uh, ridiculous, that it's fantasy, that it can't be trusted. I mean, has a snake ever talked to any of you? I mean, me neither. Uh, it just doesn't happen often in the world that we live in. And so it seems that this story of a talking snake, for some, it makes the Bible kind of beyond acceptance for rational people. Um, it says that the Bible is something that should be recognized as foolish or impossible. Um, and I can certainly understand some of the reasoning in those critiques. But here's something I want us to remember. Um, a talking snake is hardly the most outlandish thing that the Bible describes. And indeed, at the center of the Christian faith is a claim that a Jewish carpenter was in fact God incarnate who was executed and came back to life three days later. And that is at the center of our faith. So if a talking snake feels like too much for you, I wonder how you might feel about other assertions that the Bible makes that are in fact more essential and more central to the claims of the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith is one that affirms that there is a spiritual dimension to this world, that there is a reality beyond what we can see or feel or taste and touch, and that there's moments when that reality breaks into our space and time. And when that happens, uh, things like talking snakes or miracles uh, result. 
I mean, to be a follower of Jesus is to affirm that there is a spiritual dimension to this world. Um, and if you can accept that, if you can accept that there might be some spiritual realities to this world that don't look like things we see every day, then a talking snake doesn't seem so outlandish, uh, does it? Now, if you've got more questions about that or questions about anything that we say during the rest of this message, remember, for this whole series, you can text those questions into the number behind me on the screen. We'll be answering them tomorrow at Facebook Live. I will actually be there in the studio fielding these questions. But now let's turn our attention to what matters most in this text, right? We need to recognize that here in Genesis 3, uh, at its heart, what this text is about, it's saying that at some point in time, the enemy of God and God's people an entity that uh, at its heart is referenced throughout the Old Testament as kind of maybe Satan or this enemy. This, this, e this enemy either took the form of a snake or occupied the body of the snake or appeared as a snake somehow, but he shows up in the garden to Adam and Eve. And notice what the serpent says. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did, did God really say, the, this serpent, this enemy of God and God's people shows up and he asks Adam and Eve a question. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this question, it seems innocent enough at first glance, doesn't it? it? It's the kind of question we encounter all the time. You might even call it a question of clarification, right? It's the kind of question that on its face might suggest that the person asking it is indeed interested in knowing the intent or the instruction of an authority, right? Hey, hey, what did God really say? But I'd like to suggest this morning that this question, this thing that looks like a question and feels like a question is really no question at all. Because the serpent isn't interested in learning or being corrected. He isn't really curious about what God has said or what God desires. He's not speaking to find an answer. His language here, it's intended to provoke an action. I mean, this question is no question. It is sly, calculated rhetoric intended to lead these first human beings away from the God who created them. This is the first thing we need to recognize in this morning's text. This serpent is on a mission. And it starts with a question, a question that is asked not out of confusion, but with calculation and intention. But make no mistake, this serpent, he's not searching for an answer to this question. He's after Adam and Eve's lives. He wants to lead them to destruction. He despises them because they bear the image of the God that he hates. Right? He hates human beings because they're treasured by the God that he detests. And so this enemy of God and God's people, he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden with the goal of deception and the aim of destruction. He hopes that he can lead God's people to disregard God's instruction because he knows that such an action will bring calamity. God's given his humans life in a beautiful garden to, give, uh, to live in. He's given them good work to do. They're enjoying paradise, and this drives the serpent crazy. He hates to see them flourishing, and so he shows up, and he starts with this question. And he kind of opens the door to subtle speculation. Hey, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? He wants them to start thinking that maybe God's holding something back. Maybe there's some sort of good delight that God is keeping his people from enjoying. This is how great moral tragedy always begins. It starts so subtly with a question that might seem innocent enough, but that leads to great disappointment and loss. The serpent asks, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And notice how Eve responds in verse 2. The text says, 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit in the tree that it is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So notice this, church, the serpent has shown up to tempt Adam and Eve so that he might lead them away from the good God who's created paradise for them to enjoy. And he starts by questioning what God has said, by suggesting that God is holding something back. And Eve responds by saying, no, we can eat from any tree in the garden except the one tree, that tree in the middle that God said, hey, you can't eat from that tree. But then she adds, she says, or touch it or we will die. Now, again, at first read, it might seem as if Eve's response is admirable. It seems like she's responded to the serpent by correcting his deceptive question with the truth. But the only problem is her answer isn't totally accurate either. Do you remember what we read last week as we explored Genesis 2, 16 and 17? Here it is as a refresher. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You see, the Lord told Adam and Eve that they shouldn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he never said anything about touching it. Eve added the do not touch it part to her response. And church, even this small addition, this little slight capitulation to the serpent's question, it showed the serpent that his temptation was working. And the serpent knew precisely what he was doing. He knew what God had said, and he had this idea how he could lead people away from God. He knew that God had only limited his people from eating of that tree in the center of the garden. But his question, it was designed to make the people feel like they're missing out. And now the serpent knows that he's got his hooks in Eve because here she is replying with mostly the truth, right? God said, oh, we could eat from any tree, but not this tree. But now she's added something. She says, hey, God said we can't touch it either. She's starting to believe this lie that God's holding something back. She's adding to the serpent's deception. She's parroting his suggestion back to him. She's starting to suggest that maybe God's holding something back, that he's keeping her and Adam from something that's pleasant and good. And so the serpent, recognizing this opportunity, he goes in for the kill and he says, oh, you will certainly not die. I mean, here the serpent is plainly contradicting what God has said, charging that the God who created Adam and Eve and placed them in the perfect garden has lied to them. And this serpent, who is a liar, now calls God one. And he says, you've been deceived, Eve. You've been taken advantage of. Don't trust God. Trust me. He says, you will not certainly die. You'll be just fine. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the climactic finish to the serpent's deception. He begins by asking this question that's no question at all. He opens the door to doubt of God's goodness, and it starts to creep in. And then he lies unflinchingly about the consequences of ignoring God's instruction. He says, no, 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 you're not going to die at all. And all through it all, it comes to this climactic moment where he insinuates that God is not loving, not generous, and not good, but rather, the serpent suggests, God is just all about himself. God, the serpent claims, is more interested in holding on to his own power than he is in the well-being of the humans he's created. I mean, the serpent suggests that God is like a self-absorbed parent, not an attentive, interested, loving, heavenly father. And church, this is how it begins. 
begins with a question. It begins with subtle suggestion that God is holding something back. It begins with the idea that God is not good, that God is selfish and stingy, that God does not have the best interest of his people in mind. When that idea starts to take root, all kinds of destruction follows. And here in Genesis 3, we watch as a relentless enemy of God and God's people goes after Adam and Eve with all that he's got in a desperate attempt to bring their lives to ruin. I mean, let's be clear. The serpent wants Adam and Eve to be miserable. He hates them because he hates the God who loves them and made them in his image. And so Genesis 3, it describes a literal assault on the image of God. I think this is why the renowned theologian Cornelius Plantingus summarizes what happens in Genesis 3 is the vandalism of shalom, right? The vandalism of shalom. Shalom, as you might be aware, it's the Hebrew word for completeness, soundness, total welfare, a thorough, absolute peace. And Plantingus says what happens here is an enemy shows up and tries to vandalize shalom. The enemy of God tempts God's people by suggesting that God is not good so that he might lead them away from shalom and towards destruction. And that's exactly what happens. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit that they were told to avoid, and immediately the experience brought consequence to them. They recognize that they're naked, and so they scramble to make some clothes. I mean, in an instant, as they eat the fruit, shame enters the world, right? Oh, I'm naked. Self-consciousness enters the world. Insecurity enters the world. Blame enters the world. The perfection in paradise that God had created for Adam and Eve is eroded all because they acted in a way that failed to trust the goodness of their heavenly father. They did something God had told them not to do, and immediately they realized that their action had profound consequences. Church, I think we need to hear this lesson from this morning's text. Uh, Acting in contradiction to what God has instructed always brings consequence. I mean, acting in contradiction to what God has instructed, it always brings consequence, always. In fact, I'd go so far to argue that the reason God gives us instruction is so that we can avoid consequence. And he knows how this world works. He made it after all. And so he gives us instructions for our own good. And so to act against those instructions is to invite consequence, difficulty, and heartache. And a pastor that I respect greatly puts it this way. He says, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. I love that. Acting in contradiction to what God has instructed, it always brings consequence because God's instructions are designed to keep us away from those things that are destructive to human life. This means that when we say no to God's instruction, when we say, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, what we're actually doing is not living a life that leads us to be free of regret. No, we're actually inviting destruction and difficulty into our lives. We're vandalizing the shalom that God wants us to experience. And we always find ourselves, after it's run its course, experiencing shame, feeling hurt, and regret. Acting in contradiction to what God has instructed always brings consequences. Always, church. So that means that, hey, what we tell ourselves doesn't really matter. 
what we laugh off, what we know is wrong, but we do it anyway, it's costing us. It's sucking the life from our relationships. It's leading us away from intimate and honest community. It's complicating things at work. It's fueling persistent feelings of guilt. It's why we're so tired. It's why we can't smile. It's why we don't want to look in the mirror. It's why we feel far from God. It's why our lives are as difficult as they are, acting in contradiction to what God has instructed, doing what the Bible calls sin. It it destroys everything that it touches. It sets us on a trajectory away from the source of life and towards death. That's just how it works. And from Adam and Eve's first sin until now, it's always worked the same way. And acting in contradiction to what God has instructed, this this sin, it it always takes more than it gives. It always promises more than it can deliver. It always costs more than its price tag suggests. Sin destroys every time. Destroyed Adam and Eve, and it destroys us today. This morning's text shows us, as it describes the first human sin, it shows us that doing what's contrary to God's instruction has severe consequences that come with it, and it should serve as a warning It says to me, hey, Tyler, disregard God's instruction. It's your own peril. To say, God, I'm doing me. I don't care what you want. Uh, When that happens, be prepared to experience heartache. Be ready to experience consequence. God's rules concerning money, God's rules concerning sex, God's rules concerning anger and revenge, God's rules concerning the language that we should use, uh, they're designed to make our lives less complicated, not more complicated. They're designed to take us to life with fewer regrets, not more regrets. Acting in contradiction to what God has instructed, that always brings consequence, always. That's just the way it is, and that's what this morning's text teaches. But it also teaches something else. And kind of a beautiful twist at the end of the story, it shows us how our God responds when his people break his rules. Look with me, if you will, at verse 21. Text says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of sin, and he clothed them. This is astounding, church, right after Adam and Eve eat this fruit, right after they defied God and ignored his restriction, right after they placed their trust in a talking snake instead of the God who made them, right after they've blown it big time, God comes to their rescue. God intervenes on their behalf. God made Adam and Eve, who were ashamed of their nakedness, clothes so that they might be covered. This is remarkably kind of him. In fact, it reminds me of some interactions that I had with my dad when I was younger. Uh, You see, there were times growing up, and I don't know if you ever had something like this, where we'd be out camping or we'd be out maybe in the neighborhood, uh, and I'd forgotten something. Perhaps I'd forgotten an umbrella and it started to rain, or I forgot gloves and then it was super cold and the temperature would drop. And, And whenever that would happen, whenever I needed something that I didn't have, my dad would give me his and he would go without. My hands were cold, I needed gloves, I'd get his gloves, he would have no gloves. Uh, It's raining, I need a poncho, I'd get his poncho and he would get wet. I'd have made the mistake, I'd have neglected to do what needed to be done, but nevertheless, he would take the cost of my error. He would sacrifice his comfort, his warmth, his dryness, his well-being, whatever it was, so that I would not be lacking or hurting. And why? Why would he do such a thing? Well, it's simple, it's because he loved me. My dad would give me his gloves, he'd give me the coat off his back, he'd give me the umbrella that he was holding because he loved me. 
I think that's what makes Genesis 3.21 so remarkable, church. Even after his creatures totally disregard him and do their own thing, their heavenly father nevertheless intervenes on their behalf and clothes them. He steps in to make sure that they have what they need. He pursues their well-being. And friends, we need to remember this this morning. I need to remember and you need to remember that the truth is our heavenly father loves us. Your heavenly father loves you. He loves you and he wants what is best for you. And he's there ready to help even after you've totally disregarded him. And even his Urban Dictionary says that you doing you is going to lead to life without regret. Uh, we're grown-ups, and we know better. We've experienced the hurt and the frustration that comes from following our own way. We've paid the price many times over for living you do you. We've woken up and thought, how did I get here? We've hung up the phone and wondered, why did I say that? We've driven home thinking, what am I going to do now? You do you, church. It's a catchy phrase, but it's a recipe for disaster. And the reason is, it's because you do you doesn't love you. It doesn't have your best interest in mind. It promises freedom and self-control, but in reality, it leaves you just directionless and frustrated at the mercy of your own passions and desires. It does not lead to life without regret. It does not lead to happiness and stability. You do you doesn't love you, but your heavenly Father does. And so this morning, in the time that we still have together, I want us to consider what we might do when we find ourselves doubting God's goodness, what we might do when we feel ourselves being tempted to disregard God's instruction. I want us to consider how we might keep you do you from taking root in our hearts and bringing heartache to our lives. What can we do in those moments? I want to make three simple suggestions in the time that remains. In fact, I'd like to suggest three simple prayers that we might pray in the midst of temptation to refocus our hearts and our minds on what's true, to open ourselves up to God's redirection so that he might lead us towards patterns of living that are increasingly free from the consequences of sin and not towards destruction. So it's three prayers in the time that remains. Here's the first. When we find ourselves considering a course of action that we have a hunch that God wouldn't approve of, but we really want to go after it anyway, so we start to justify it in our minds, and we begin to ask ourselves, hey, hey, did God really say, would it really be that bad after all? When we find ourselves in those moments, whether it's contemplating infidelity or financial dishonesty, when we find ourselves considering a course of action that we're seeking to justify, what if we instead stopped and pressed pause and prayed this prayer, uh, Lord, Show me the cost of this action. Lord, show me the cost of this action. There's a dear mentor of mine who is a strong advocate of this prayer. I know it to be a prayer that God uses to add some helpful weight to the brake pedals of our lives to keep us from doing something or headed somewhere that we'll regret going. Lord, show me the cost of this action. Perhaps that's a prayer that you need to pray this afternoon or this coming week. And allow God to work in your imagination and help you see that what you're considering, it, it's not going to be something that's harmless and it's not going to be something that's insignificant and it's something that's going to come at a real cost because it contradicts God's good design. It's something that will lead you to, to regret. What if this prayer this week as you prayed it helped you avoid some serious heartache and hurt? That's the first prayer. Lord, show me the cost of this action. 
Maybe that's a prayer that you need to pray this week. Here's the second prayer. And I imagine this prayer, it's uh, for those of you who are here this morning who might be thinking, man, Tyler, I know the path that I'm traveling isn't good, right? I have a pretty good idea that the habits that I'm in, the decisions I've been making, I I know they have costs. I'm living those costs right now, but but I've got to be honest. I'm choosing to do my own thing, living kind of you do you, even when it costs me greatly, it's really all I know. It's so familiar, it's so habitual, and it seems to work, at least for now, even though I know that it's not taking me anywhere good. It's just the life that I know. If that's where you are, if there's a certain temptation that has your number, and whenever it calls, you pick up. If you feel trapped or helpless, if you feel like you're unable to get traction towards change, maybe here's a prayer for you. Uh, Lord, remind me what I really want. Remind me what I really want. I believe that this prayer could be used by God to remind your heart and your mind of the life that God desires for you, the life that you were made to enjoy, a life of integrity, a life of wholeness, a life with nothing to fear, nothing to hide, and nothing to regret, a life of true freedom. Lord, remind me what I really want. I think this is a prayer that God could use to grow a vision of a free life, renewed life, healthy existence within you. And and I hope that as that vision grows, that along with it might come the motivation to speak up or to seek help or to enter counseling or to admit the addiction or to confess to a trusted person. Lord, remind me what I really want. Could this prayer be what gives you a vision of a preferred and better future, a life with God, a life free from regret and free from hiding that might actually give a little bit of motivation to take some steps forward in fighting some of the actions that you know aren't what God has intends and that you can see have brought great consequence to your life. Lord, remind me what I really want. That's the second prayer this morning. And finally, I'm sure there are some of you here this morning who are thinking, Tyler, it's too late for me. It's too late for me. I, I've blown it. I've eaten the forbidden fruit again and again and again and again. I've been living for so long with absolute disregard for God. It is too late for me. It, it's over. I've gone too far. I've ruined too much. If that's you this morning, can I invite you to join me in this third prayer? Uh, Lord, cover me with your love. Lord, cover me with your love because church this is true from adam and eve's time until today god has continually faithfully poured out his love on people who disregarded him we see it clearly in this morning's text as god stitches clothes together for adam and eve and we see it most clearly in human history when we look at christ on the cross god himself giving his own life so that our sins might be removed and we might experience rich deep, transforming relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is the work that God delights to do, church. He loves loving His people. He enjoys redeeming and restoring and renewing, and He wants to do that for you. A dear friend of mine says, if Jesus' blood doesn't cover everything, it covers nothing. No matter what you've said, what you've done, where you've been, no matter how much or how often you've disregarded God's instruction, God loves you. And he gladly responds and moves close to those who invite him to come. Lord, cover me with your love. Is that a prayer that you need to pray this week? If you feel like you've blown it, if you feel like you've gone too far, remember, your heavenly Father loves you. And he longs for you to experience rich, full, unashamed life with him.
And friends, th this morning's text shows us that doing whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, doesn't lead to life without regret. It leads to destruction. But even after we've blown it, our kind Heavenly Father invites us to return to Him for grace and mercy. And so would you turn to Him now with me in prayer as we close this time together? Oh, Lord, how often have we got distracted? Have we been tempted? Have we disregarded you and your instruction because something else comes along and promises more freedom, greater joy, a fuller experience? And Lord, time and time again, we've come up wanting. We've recognized that it was a lie. We've realized that we traded in something that was so good for something that is so not good. Lord, would you help us? This week, would you show us the cost of actions that we're considering that would lead us towards heartache and away from you? God, would you help us to see that cost so plainly? And Lord, would you remind us what we really want? Would you help us to see that what's promising satisfaction, what's promising total happiness, Lord, that it, it can't deliver on its promises? Lord, what we truly want is the life that you've designed us to live, a life of integrity, wholeness, completeness, a life without regret. That's what you desire for us. Remind us of that, Lord. Remind us that that's what our heart was made to crave. And God, if we feel like we've gone too far, would you cover us with your love even this morning, even now? Would you remind us that no matter what we've done, where we've been, what we've said, your blood covers over everything and washes us clean. We need that reminder, Lord. Be with us this week as we think about the cost of disregarding you. We ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen.